Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the fruit of your bride, the church, our mother. We pray that you will continue to produce fruit through us, that we will love others. We pray particularly for the Lentons that you will give them the desires of their heart and that you will give them the souls of their people, and particularly Judy's father. Father, we pray as we come to your word now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, when you have people in your home, don't make a big deal out of it. That's the error that so often is made that you feel like you have to have clean silverware and a nice tablecloth, and you don't. It would be better if the rats didn't run amidst the feet at the dinner table. There was this one family back in uh, Philadelphia, General Harrison's daughter and her husband. And you went to their house, very nice house, very dignified people. But when you would eat, their huge dog was under the table and I won't say anything more. I will say it was deeply disconcerting. (laughs) So have people in and don't think that you need to have a special menu or anything. And if you sin in front of them, that, it's interesting. So I dedicated, Mary Lee and I dedicated the book to a couple of couples. And I'm sure those couples will be flabbergasted to see that we dedicated the book to them. And honestly, they fought in front of us. And yet we had such hope for marriage and family life by being in their home. Because it was clear they loved each other. And they had snip snap. I remember riding with one of them on the way to a Christian school banquet. And he was on the board and the whole way. I mean, she was in his face about turn here and don't. No, you don't do that, you know. And it was like you were riding a roller coaster. You know, just the snip snapping as they drove. And yet they had a beautiful marriage and their home was open. Now, That has to do with our text, which I shall now read. Romans chapter 13, 11 to 14. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is the word of the Lord. So does anybody know the time? Here the Apostle Paul commands us to obey these commands he's just given, keeping in mind what time it is. Now, what are the commands? Well, you have to understand that obviously they're the commands that immediately follow about laying aside the deeds of darkness, not carousing, stuff like that, right? Put on Christ. But also, they're obviously the commands that just came before, 
because he says, do this. And so do this would point both back and forward. And so um, you know that he's just gotten done saying, honor and obey and pay taxes to the civil authority. And there's never been a period of time, never, where Christians resent and rebel against the civil authority. That's why he has to say it. So you're just normal. And it is to you, he says it. So you know that's what immediately preceded this command. But really, this command, do this, refers the whole way back to the beginning of what is called the ethical part of the book. So there's doctrine, there's ethics, or there are truths, and then there are applications, or there's a way to think, and there's a way to live. And with the beginning of chapter 12 in Romans, we have, because of these doctrines of Romans 1 to 11, now live this way. And so at the beginning of this live this way, this is what we read at the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, given all the doctrine, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. (laughs) So if you will, this command that comes out, don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And that's the rubric for the whole rest of the book of Romans. That's the, the, the structural, the, the syntax, that's the rules, that, that is the, 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 the beams of the rest of the book of Romans. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. All right? And when we get to our text this morning, knowing the time, wake up, salvation is near, lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its loss. And it begins, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And here in our text, it's telling us to stop being taken up with darkness. And then it defines the darkness. And the darkness is sensuality. And the darkness is sexual immorality. And the darkness is jealousy and envy and strife. The darkness is deeds of darkness that are shameful. That's why they're done in the dark. And here's our problem. Our problem is that Christians and churches never think that those are their problems. They think that when they give themselves to sensuality and sexual immorality, that it's anomaly. Or they think that's what other people in the church do, and that's not a danger to them. And so if I were to ask you the question, who is this talking to for heaven's sakes? You'd say, well, them. Certainly not widows. I mean, really, widows? 
Sensuality? It's very interesting that when the Bible talks to widows, do you remember what instruction it gives concerning the widows? It tells them not to be alcoholics. Really? Oh, Linda. Now listen, why would a widow have to be told not to be addicted to wine? Well, it's as obvious as obvious can be. She's lonely. And the bottle comforts her. Now, am I saying Linda is an alcoholic? No, I'm not, although she might be. I wouldn't know. But I'm sure Cheryl would, and Cheryl would deal with it, you know. But listen, people. When the Apostle Paul writes and he says, do not let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing, not drunkenness, not sexual promiscuity, not sensuality, and not strife and not jealousy. This means that generally speaking, this is what is in the church. It's unbelievable to me how easy it is for us as Christians to have a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought. And to listen to commands like this and to think, well, they must have been really bad people back then. If the Apostle Paul says, don't do these things, that's because we do these things. And until we get that into our head, Scripture isn't helpful. The Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him are not inane. You know what a name is? That's the guy that blabs and blabs and blabs and never says nothing that has application to you. He's a name. You know, it's like a, a junior high school student who's discovered his speech apparatus. And you're in the car with him and a couple other kids and he just... Blah, 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 blah. I can remember one of my grandchildren one day in the car explaining to him, if you're going to contribute to the conversation, have some connection to the people in the car and the people, that what they've been saying, the conversation. At least make, a, make an effort to have what you say somehow connected to what other people have been talking about. In other words, don't be a name. Is the Apostle Paul a name in what he says in Scripture? Do you just roll right over it and think those people, Rome, well, yeah, narrows the boss. And so, of course, they have to be told not to give themselves to sensuality. You know, I think about Hillsdale. Well, you send your children to Hillsdale so they don't have to deal with sexual immorality and sensuality. What are you laughing about? <laughs> I'm happy to hear Don laugh anywhere, anytime. So, listen. Would you please not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And you might sit there and think, well, I don't. My problem is that I don't think highly enough about myself. You know, I have low self-esteem. You know how that goes? And my response is, there, that's it! Don't do it. And you say, don't do what? I don't have any self-esteem. And I say, that's self-esteem. Because who's stronger and more proud today than the victim? 
you're the sore thumb of the universe, you know? And look at me, I suffer! I've been done wrong, <laughs> you know? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You're just normal. Everybody suffers. You're nothing special. And furthermore, Jesus, he really suffered. And he's the only one that didn't deserve it. No, 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 don't talk to me about your suffering. And you say, well, you don't have much compassion, do you? And I say, yes, I do. I'm trying to keep you from thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. If you judge compassion today on the basis of what the world sells as compassion, it's always opposite. The world is always posturing as having compassion precisely when they have none. You, you understand that. Every evil deed of the last 50 years has been done supposedly as an act of compassion. Obergefell is an act of compassion. And it destroys souls. Come on, you guys. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be assuming that the Bible is not inane. Be assuming that the Holy Spirit knows the secrets of your hearts. One of the things in our paper on abortion that's going to be most difficult for us is that in the paper, we talk about how hormonal birth control murders children regularly. Birth control, hormonal. It kills living children. But the church refuses to hear this because the church is so committed to obstructing pregnancy. And so the church has become very legalistic about when life begins and, the, you know, OB-GYNs tell you that it's, and it's a lie. And listen, I was explaining to the, the Linton women yesterday or the day before, that I think it was them, that when I was a young man and I began to read the Bible, one of the things I noticed is the endless theme of the blood guilt of God's people. Now, yeah, the Canaanites but God's people, and it's constantly condemning God's people for being blood guilty. And God's constantly talking about his hatred of the shedding of the blood of innocence, right? If you've ever read the Bible, you know this is a theme throughout Scripture, and you know it starts with Cain and Abel. And I remember thinking to myself as I read this about blood guilt, and God hating the shedding of blood. I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't do that, you know? And then I remember thinking, well, nobody, I mean, we just don't do that today, you know? And so it became one of those places in Scripture where I just immediately sort of shoved to the side and said, well, thank God we've evolved past that. You know, we're more sophisticated. But then, I had this gnawing thought in the back of my mind that probably that wasn't right. Probably I had some way of snookering Scripture so that it didn't apply to me. Do you approach Scripture reading that way? Do you approach it with your hermeneutic being self-suspicion? You know? You know what I'm saying? The very point at which you think Scripture doesn't apply to you is probably the point where it does apply to you. You know? 
And so I began to think about it, and I began to study abortion. And I'm telling you, it just made me sick. It made me sick. Absolutely sick. Because the minute you start thinking about abortion, (laughs) oh my goodness. And then you begin to listen to liberals and you see the headlines on Google about this little, you know, this uh, bald eagle egg. And they even have headlines about vegetation, where they assign personhood. You know, they even gave standing in court. They wanted to give standing in court to the redwood trees in California. And the hypocrisy of liberalism. But the hypocrisy of the church, one of the things this document does is it just absolutely opens up the church's hypocrisy. All of us have blood on our hands of our children. All of us. All of us. And you say, well, not me. I say, okay, you're the exception that proves the rule. There's absolutely no question that the church in America is filthy with blood. The church. I'm not talking about the pagans. And so why do we always think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? Why? Is it really a threat to us to have to confess bloodshed to God? You remember what the apostles said to the Jews. After Jesus ascended into heaven, you remember this, don't you? The theme in their sermons was, you killed him. I would just love to see that today. I'd love to see a a renaissance of biblical preaching against the Jews. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to say that. (laughs) That's too edgy. Have you guys ever thought about that? That the apostolic preaching of the cross condemned the Jews listening for their bloodshed. Think, is that somehow antithetical to the preaching of the gospel? Think. And if we look at the New Testament, what we see is it wasn't destructive to the gospel proclamation and evangelization. It actually worked. Because they said, what are we supposed to do? They saw that this was God's son who they had killed and said, his blood be on us and our children's children. Do you know what Jürgen told me about the Germans this time? I had never heard this before. But but Jürgen told me that there are no Germans who were Nazis that the Nazis were the Nazis, but they weren't the Germans. And they look at us as their allies in the Second World War because we freed them from the Nazis, right? And I said, so then who were the Nazis? And he just laughed and he said, well, that's the point. (laughs) There were none, (laughs) you know? And we laugh at this and then I talk about abortion 
which categorically is billions more than any blood that you can assign to the Nazis. And we're just immediately thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We don't care because it's hidden. We never went down to Planned Parenthood and we didn't know what we were doing. And I say, do you think any of the Germans knew what they were doing? Have you read any history? Have you read any history? Listen. What the apostle of love, John, says is John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. He doesn't say some. He doesn't say minor righteousness. He doesn't say occasional. He says all unrighteousness. And we as Americans have infinitely more blood on our hands than the Germans have ever had. It doesn't mean that there's moral equivalence. But if you just want to talk in terms of blood, there is no equivalence. We have a corner on it. And God hates the shedding of blood. And he particularly hates the shedding of blood of unborn children who are defenseless and can never speak up in their own behalf. Now, has this made the love of God in Jesus Christ more precious to you? I mean, you get my point. Why are we always trying to cheapen the blood of Jesus by having it apply to lesser sins? Why are we always trying to deny the grace of Jesus Christ by, by preaching against lesser sins and being more calm about it and, and, and talking about lack of self-image and, and I'm selfish, I'm selfish. Really? You're selfish. Naughty, naughty new. Now, I'm not making light of selfishness. It's the principal sin that Tim Keller preaches against. But Tim Keller's people's real problem is sensuality, sexual immorality, murder. Why would you bother preaching just against selfishness when you have murderers in the pews? Why do we have such a small view of how precious the blood of Jesus is? Wouldn't it glorify God for us to proclaim the wickedness that he has saved us from. Wouldn't that glorify God? So why are we so intent on showing people how good we are and how superior we are? <laughs> We're not. Our only superiority is in the ability to perceive how wicked we are. That's basically what defines a Christian. And that itself is a gift of God. You see, what I'm trying to do is get us to begin to cop a plea with the book of Romans. Remember the beginning of the second chapter? He's gotten done listing the sins of the Canaanites, of the Gentiles, of the uncircumcised. 
You know, it ends with the high point of homosexuality. And then he says, and you, (laughs) you know, and he's turning to all the people who are saying, yeah, them, 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 you know, and he says, you, do you commit adultery? The whole book of Romans is an attempt to get us to cop a plea of guilty and to give up all our self-justifications. When you stand before the judge, there are two possibilities. Guilty, not guilty. And you remember my favorite New Yorker cartoon, a little guy standing below the bench looking up and he says, guilty with an explanation, your honor. You can't do that. So do this. Don't think more highly. Don't let the world press you into mold. Submit and honor and pay taxes to civil authority. Do this knowing the time. Now, what does time have to do with it? Well, that word time is Greek word kairos. And I don't talk about Greek words a lot, except sexuality words. I hope I've taught you something about that. But I like this word kairos because it gets at something that we don't have the ability to express as directly in English. And so when they translate it time, and then they they say that it is already the hour, you're dealing with two Greek words here, kairos and chronos. Well, chronos, you know, from chronometer, you know it from chronology. And so we get it, it's time. But when it comes to time before, it's the Greek word kairos. And this Greek word kairos is uh, maybe best, um, maybe it's best to get at it by talking about pregnancy. All right. So Mary Lisa Dula, you know that. And there are many nights where we've gone to bed with her phone on. And the reason is that the kairos is upon us, going into labor. When are you due? What's your due date? Now, I could speak a little more, but I'm not going to. But as it comes close, certain things happen. And the, uh, the pregnancy of the moment is heavy. The suffering is about to begin. It's life and death. It's heavy with meaning and importance and danger and joy, you know? You got it? So kairos is the point at which the patient either lives or dies. The fever breaks or the patient dies. It's little round top in the Battle of Gettysburg. It's the Battle of Gettysburg in the war between the states, okay? It is the pregnant moment. Okay, now listen to this again. It says what? Well, it says, do this knowing the weightiness of the moment, the pregnancy of the moment. Well, what's the moment? What is he talking about? Well, he says, the hour for you to awaken from sleep. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And then he defines it again by saying, for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. (laughs) 
Now listen, I told you a year and a half ago or a year and a quarter ago, I was not going to stop talking about Adam. And I've never had a death, even my own family, that has influenced me as, as much in causing me to be aware of heaven. Okay? I've never had a death where I have seen so intimately the fruit of the death in the lives of my people. It just continues and continues and continues and continues to produce fruit. And it's beautiful fruit. And so you think about the Apostle Paul writing, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. How could anything make this clearer to us than the death of Adam Spadey? And you say, well, why? And I say, because it's made us aware of the kingdom of God. We have a precious one there. Some of you women who have had miscarriages, you mothers, think of how God has used that to make you aware of the kingdom of God. It's such a beautiful thing. And it's such a horrible thing. Right? It's both beautiful and horrible. Right? We're closer to the day of redemption than we were yesterday. It's drawing near. Choo-choo! The salvation train is moving. Now, as the salvation train comes for you, do you want to be asleep? (laughs) Do you want to be holding your lamp without oil? Hmm? It's amazing. Last week I was talking about dispensationalism. And it's amazing how Christians in this country have entertained themselves with escapist plot lines. Because the one thing that scriptures, oh, by the way, you got to hear this. This is precious. So I'm standing in the door last week after preaching that sermon, right? And (laughs) Eleanor comes up to me and she gives me this big beaming grin. And she says, do you know how, who married Joe, Joe and me? And I said, no. And she said, Tim LaHaye. Oh, my goodness, I thought that was funny. And she wasn't mad at me, right? You thinking about it or? So you think about dispensationalism, and I know I've gotten, you know, people who were raised dispensationalists still believe it, are, are upset that I said what I said about dispensationalism. But listen, I know it intimately. I went to Columbia Bible College. I grew up in a dispensationalist church. I knew moody people. I mean, it is the ethos that every person my age grew up in in this country, okay? We all know it. And it is absolutely true that the Left Behind series was escapism. And I don't understand how you're going to use eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times, to do anything other than intensify your obedience. 
Because the theme all through scripture is don't be caught sleeping. Don't be caught drunk. Don't be asleep. That's the theme. And it's relentless all through scripture. The master's returning, get ready! And so how do we turn it into escapism? Honestly, when everything that's said in scripture is that the day of the Lord is gonna come, how? Like a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord, I mean, think of Jesus' story of the virgins and the oil and the lamps. <laughs> I mean, if that one won't shock you. God saves us by grace. Through faith alone. But that faith is not of itself. True faith always produces lamps with oil. The perseverance of the saints, holiness. And you know, I know your friends are going to tell you that what Christians mean by holiness is that everybody dresses the way Tim Bailey dresses. And everybody acts the way Mary Lee Bailey acts. And I mean, the idea that Christians are conformists and pagans are free how could you possibly have more stupidity than among liberalism? I mean, every single one of them that opens their mouth sounds precisely the same. You know, their arguments. I just read sections out of Peter Singer's book published 25 years ago on ethics. This is the dude that I mentioned a week ago who makes, who makes a big deal out of the fact that us talking about man being the image of God is speciesism, okay? It's a specious argument, but it's a joke, pun. And so he's going on about this, and you read what he's saying. Let me read Calvin at this point. Calvin on this text says this. He says, by night, Paul means ignorance of God. Did you hear the word? Ignorance. Do you remember that the apostle Paul uses that word of the Areopagus? In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. Remember that? He says, by night, Paul means ignorance of God, and all who are held in this ignorance wander and sleep as in the night. Unbelievers labor under the two evils of being blind and stupid. <laughs> Come on, guys, laugh. It's funny. Calvin's accusing unbelievers of being stupid. The Apostle Paul accused the men of the Areopagus and Greece and Athens of being stupid. It's funny. It's not funny because we're superior to them. It's funny because they don't seem to see what is so obvious to us, which is that outside of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we're stupid stupefied, and we can't think properly because we're in the dark. 
Listen, from the time I've come to Bloomington, having lived in Madison and Boston and Boulder and Wheaton, you know, you just are, are satiated with intellectuals. You know, they're up your nostrils and coming out your ears. Well, it's true. And so I come to Bloomington to a church that is just filled with conceit about intellectual sophistication, but they just sound like pagans. It's just identical. And one man there who was an elder was the vice president of Indiana University. He never came to church, but he did come to vote against me once. (laughs) I think his daughter was a, a divinity student at Yale. And what I saw were the professors and the administrators were just deadened. They were hardened in their hearts and filled with pride. And the students were just hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You remember that. It was so beautiful, hundreds of them. They'd come to church Sunday night by the hundreds. And I was thinking about the fact that the modern university has removed God, but thinks it's wise. And so I I sent a copy of a book to this vice president who was an elder of my church. And the title of the book is The Idea of a University. And it's by John Henry Newman. And that book is a book that opens up the fact that if you do not have theology as the queen of science, you don't have science. You don't have biology. You don't have linguistics. You don't have English. You don't have languages. You don't have math. It it is God and his truth that has been the basis of the enlightenment of universities, of literacy. And I could go on and on and on and on. It's God who is there. I never heard back from him. Never heard back from him. And you know, you sit there and you think, well, how on earth would you put theology back into IU? And I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. It would be easy. You say, well, it would be corrupted. I say, it's corrupted at Hillsdale. <laughs> you know? Oh, this church can be corrupted right now while I'm preaching. That's how easy it is for a fallen world to fall. But it doesn't mean that the work is wrong. And what is the work? Well, the work is not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, to refuse to let the world press us into its mold, is how Phillips paraphrases it, and then to wake up. To wake up! Now listen, do you mind waking up in the morning? I'm not talking about right at first. I I confess that I'm irritable and not nice to my wife when I get up in the morning a few weeks ago. And my dear brother, David Canfield, came out and he read me the riot act. He was so angry at me for not being nice to Mary Lee in the morning. And I was set back on my haunches. So the next morning I got up and I was tempted to be sort of moody and nasty. 
early in the morning, and I remembered what David had exhorted me about. And so I went ahead and was moody and nasty to Mary Lee, you know. But then I thought, oh boy. So then I apologized to her, so you can pray for me about this. But listen, do any of us, do any of us regret the light? Do any of us not find hope in us when it gets warm again? Do any of us mind the dawn? No. The day is almost on us. The day of his appearing. Okay? Now that's sweet. And and Adam's death makes us more hopeful for that day. The death of every one of your little ones in your womb makes you more hopeful for that day. We are not the people that have to cremate to deny that it's painful. We cry. (laughs) Okay, now listen. This text is a beautiful text. The Apostle Paul is reminding of us a hope that is before us. The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now this word armor is the same word that's uh, in put on the full armor of God, you know, the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6. Uh, it's also the same word that refers to the weapons that were brought into the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there and it says they brought uh, torches and uh, lamps or something and so the, the Greek word is hoplos. Well, if you are a student of military history, you immediately think what, Ben? Hoplites. Same, same root. And so these are all the accoutrements of war. These are the tools, the instruments of war. You would be tempted to think that because it says put on the armor of light, that it's only referring to like the uh, shield of radar, Kevlar vests, metal plates, you know, uh, shields. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about both the offenses and the defensive weapons tools. And so he says, lay aside the deeds of God, put on the armor of light. Now, what would the armor of light be? Well, behaving properly is in the day. The armor of light is behaving properly. The armor of light is what? Well, the armor of light is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You remember that in Ephesians 6. Okay? Get the armor of light. Stop sleeping. Wake up. Put on your armor. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't need armor because I'm not offensive like you are, Tim. I get along with people. But if, if you have a mouth like you do, Tim, you better find some armor. But you get what you deserve. 
In the church today, we have become convinced that it's the person with the dullest sword who is the most gospel evangelist. We have become convinced that it's the man that has learned to dull his knife who is the most sophisticated at warfare. And so that's why Tim Keller is loved. Because he dulls everything he touches. And you say, oh my goodness, everybody loves Tim Keller. I love Tim Keller. What are you talking about? And I say, well, you love gentle and mild and still he started talking about that. Wake up. Darkness is the absence of discernment. Darkness is stupidity. Darkness is dull. There is no distinction in, 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 in what? Seeing when you're in the dark. You have to reach out and touch. You know? You can't see in the dark. Of course everybody loves Tim Keller. And can you imagine if the Apostle Paul and Tim Keller preached one for half an hour, one for half an hour? And one would be soporific, not so sleep-inducing, and one would be vivifying. One, you'd be bored to tears and think it was a wonderful exposition. The other, you'd be it would be like you're on a cliff with your fingernails dug into the crevices saying, help, help, help. People, we are not to love darkness. We are to love light. And the more, the better. We want our sins exposed. We don't want to be flattered. We don't want to be lied to. We don't want the edge of the word of God taken off. Because when it's preached to us in its full truthfulness, it makes us hopeless. And then, only then, is our hope Jesus. So you children, when you hear me preach and you get discouraged because I help you see your sin and you think, but I leave depressed. Don't leave depressed. Leave hopeful because now you see why Jesus had to die. It never made sense to you before. But you think about your nastiness to your dad yesterday and how angry you are at your mother and how you bonked your brother on the head yesterday. And now... You hear your pastor tell you that you need Jesus. Um, to say that I love Bach is stupid because everybody loves Bach, right? But there's one particular song by Bach that I really, really like, okay? And here it is. Uh, do 
And do you know what it's called? It's called sleeper. Awake. Isn't that something? Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I mean, it's like, oh no, is it time? It's such a beautiful presentation of the Christian life. Ten steps back and one forward, but the one forward was higher than previously. That's light. Listen, give me your eyes, women. Give me your eyes. Give me your eyes. Come on, give me your eyes. Now, I know that's weird, right, that I would ask you to give me your eyes. But... Your eyes are the windows to your heart. And it's not, it's not Tim talking to you, it's God. He's calling you to himself. Now, do I think I'm God? No. <laughs> are you kidding? You know I don't think I'm God. But people, we have to love God. And give ourselves to the light and allow our deeds to be exposed for what they are and exchange them for the righteousness of Jesus, right? Right? And what joy! What joy! Then there's some hope that we won't fight with each other. Right? Because instead of trying to get ahead of each other and being superior to each other and being envious of each other, because that's all the rest of the book of Romans is going to talk about. It's just going to endlessly call us to live together in love. But we've decided to wake up and to open our eyes and to live together in the light. If we walk together, come on. Oh, come on. Do you not know scripture? If we walk in as, what happens? Come on, say it aloud. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And that's the rest of the book of Romans, okay? And so, here's an idea. Let's live in the light. Let's live in the light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its loss. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in the light. Help us to walk in the light. Help us to have fellowship with one another. Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We love you, Father. We love your Son. We love your Spirit. We love your Word. Make us one as you and your Son and your Spirit are one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.